0: Hi, I'm Lina Sergia and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. <laughs> Here we are, the first episode of Belongings. I'm so excited to share these two conversations with you today. The first with my friend, Molly Crabapple, award-winning artist, journalist, writer, activist. Everything that she touches is amazing and she really brings details to life no matter where she is, in a war zone, in Syria, Ukraine, researching for a book or even just being in her hometown of New York City, everything becomes alive around her and she brings such important concepts to life. I really respect and love her vision and I was taken by a specific concept that she's been researching, which is the concept of hereness So I hope that you really enjoyed that part as well. I learned a lot from our conversation together as I always do when I speak with Molly. My second conversation is with young Rima, a teenager at Karam House Rehanle who I love and admire so much. This young woman has so many dreams She's so brilliant and talks about her journey from Syria to Turkey, her life in Turkey today, and the things that she's looking forward to, as well as how she describes belonging. She also talks about things with so much detail, and I know that there are a lot of amazing things ahead in life for Rima. So please enjoy this episode of Belongings. Well, hello, Molly. Welcome to Belongings. Hello, Lena. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. For everybody listening, Molly Crabapple is one of my favorite people on earth. She's an accomplished writer and artist, and she's in New York City. We're so happy to have her as a friend of Kerem Foundation. She's done so much work in collaboration with us over the years, and I admire her work very much. You should all be looking at her work, at her books, and we'll be talking a lot about what she's done over the years and the impact of home and belonging on her work. So before we begin, I just want to read a short bio of Molly's incredible Incredible work. Molly Crabapple is an artist and writer based in New York. She's the author of two books, Drawing Blood and Brothers of the Gun with Marwan Hisham, which was long listed for a National Book Award in 2018. Her reportage has been published in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review, Vanity Fair, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and elsewhere. Her art is in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art. Her animations have been nominated for three Emmys and won an Edward R. Murrow Award. She got her start as a journalist sketching on the front lines of Occupy Wall Street before covering, with words and art, Lebanese snipers, labor struggles in Abu Dhabi, Guantanamo Bay, the U.S. border, American prisons, Greek refugee camps, and the ravages of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. She even once confronted Donald Trump in Dubai about the exploitation of the workers building his golf courses. As an award-winning animator, she has pioneered a new genre of live-illustrated explainer journalism, collaborating with AOC, Jay-Z, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the ACLU. Her animations are on permanent display at the Equal Justice Initiative's Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, which I've seen, and they're incredible. So welcome, Molly.
1: Oh my God, my pleasure to be here.
0: So the first question I want to start with, I know that you have just arrived from a trip in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, and I wanted to ask you about your trip and about what you've seen, why you were there, and an update on the situation from your point of view.
1: Well, I was originally in Eastern Europe, uh, not to cover the war in Ukraine, but because I'm writing a book about my great-grandfather, who was a Jewish socialist artist from uh, Belarus. And I was trying to visit places where his movement had been active in, so places like uh, Vilnius and and Kaunas. But because I was very near Ukraine and because I have many friends that are war journalists that were there, I decided that I wanted to go and I wanted to see the situation. And so I spent two weeks in Lviv, Kiev, and Odessa And I also uh, visited Bucha, which is a, a town right outside of Kiev where that became famous when the Russians did horrific massacres there. And a few things struck me. First, which is something that I'm ashamed to know and doesn't have to do with the war, is what a stunningly beautiful and great country Ukraine is. I mean, these cities were like Vienna meets Istanbul. These cities that were like everything stunning and gold domed in the world. Uh, Odessa filled with fat, lazy cats. Lviv with the most glamorous chicks and, you know, all with their blowouts and gelled nails. You know, Kiev with with the Mikhailovsky church that was like rebuilt in the 90s that looks like something out of a fairy tale. It's so beautiful, right? So that was my first sort of superficial thing. The second thing is how the war, thanks to the Ukrainian army and the help that it's gotten, has been pushed back to the east. So the Russians got all the way to the outskirts of Kiev. They bombed the hell out of these towns like Borodyanka that, when I was there, it reminded me of something you would see in Syria, you know, just apartment blocks that were charred black and half collapsed in the center with, you know, bits of people's homes just kind of, Stuck to the sides like Deratras, but they had been pushed back. And so life was kind of in some ways returning to a quasi normal in places like Kiev and especially Lviv. But even this sort of quasi normal, it's wrong to say that because every single person has lost something in the war, whether that something is that they've lost their friends, whether that something is that they have, you know, parents or grandparents in an area that's being occupied or whether that's something is that their 59-year-old dad has been drafted and has been sent to the front and had like a week to wrap up his construction business. Anything that's hard about normal life, things that like we all have to deal with maybe like taking care of an ill and elderly parent, anything like that is made so much harsher by the war. The other thing that struck me is how... United Ukrainians were in a commitment to resist the invasion and in saying that, no, we don't want this. We reject these lies that, you know, just because of history, just because Ukraine was part of the Tsarist empire, someone can come and like bomb our cities and annex us. I met an old lady who told me that she had learned what hate feels like through this invasion and that she would be prepared to kill an occupier herself. I just saw in Western Ukraine, a country really, really, really sure about what it wanted and really, really, really committed to resist uh, imperialist violent invasion.
0: It's really striking the kinds of like human pieces of stories that you're telling. And I know that you've done this for a really long time in so many different places around the world and including in the US. And for me, it's just it was so hard to watch the early days of the Ukrainian war because, like you said, it did remind me so much of Syria. And it also was shocking to see, you know, entire neighborhoods bombed like that and looking like Aleppo within three or four days of the beginning of the invasion. You know, shocking how fast things moved. And um, a lot of Syrians also We're seeing kind of the same things. It was very traumatizing to watch, as well as under feeling that, you know, so much, you know, in terms of learning how to do warfare quicker and more devastating way was learned almost in Syria. And now is being transferred other places in the world that was very hard to actually absorb as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I talked to people a lot about that and I, I told them, you know, also what I saw in Syria and what I saw listening to refugees from Syria and how one of the Russian army's strategies is to make places uninhabitable so as to create refugee crises. It's so that no one can have a kid there because it's just too dangerous. With the bombings to bomb bakeries, to bomb schools, to bomb hospitals, and then to lie and say that the people that they're bombing did it to themselves. Exact same thing that's happening in t- in Ukraine. Uh, whereas you know Russian propaganda lied and claimed that Syrians gassed themselves. You know, ridiculous lie. They would say the same about Ukraine. They would say Ukraine, you know, Ukrainians bombed themselves that or that they murdered their own people in Bucha. It's the same type of propaganda that's being used.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. And I think that it'll continue going. But it's really great to hear about the stories of Ukrainian solidarity, and also people being able to go back to their homes and to rebuild and find some kind of normalcy. And we hope that the
1: entire invasion and war will end soon. Absolutely. And another thing that struck me is the way that right now that um, Ukrainian refugees are being treated by neighboring countries is really good. And it ought to be a model for how every refugee is treated When I took the bus back, the bus was only Ukrainian women and children because men aren't allowed to leave the country. So when I took the bus back into Poland, it was just a simple passport check. There were volunteers from El Salvador. uh, They were there at the church group who had um, coffee and tea. And there were stations that were set up by the government to you know, hook people up with getting where they needed to go, right, or getting some place to live. And I just thought, like, first, obviously Ukrainians deserve this, but how wonderful it would be and how just it would be if Syrians and Afghans and everyone else, Eritreans, you know, who people from El Salvador, right? All of these people were treated the same way at borders because it's hell to have to leave your home automatically. It's hell to have to abandon your dad or your husband there. But the fact that at least at the borders, you're treated like a human being with dignity is just so much better than how literally any other refugees are treated. And I just hope that Countries can learn from this, that this is how all refugees deserve to be treated.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that if that that lesson is what we take away from this experience, it would be such a huge benefit to the world to see that as a model, exactly how you said so I want to like reverse back. So we, we were just on your trip and we probably will get back to that work. And I want to hear more about this an upcoming book project that's coming along in a little bit. But I want it before we started part of this belongings podcast is to ask our guests to draw us a map of home. And I'm very excited for you to share your drawing with our audience, especially since Molly Crabapple <laughs> is such an amazing artist. And so can you tell us a story about what you drew,
1: where this is, why this is your Map of home? First of all, it's not exactly like an overhead map, but I drew this kind of simplified version of a series of brownstones in Brooklyn. And the reason I drew this is it's a little bit based on the brownstones that my abuelo had in Prospect Heights. It's kind of just based on, you know, coming from New York in general. So in New York, you know, brownstones were originally houses for rich people. That as these rich people kind of left, they became houses for a lot of poorer people, and like in this case, like kind of lower middle class, working class Puerto Ricans. And these brownstones are so beautiful. They're so whimsical. They have like marble floors and uh, you know gargoyles, cool windows, crystal doorknobs, and. To me, what they represented was they represented like a sort of uh, working-class luxury in New York, right? This thing where they're kind of gritty, they're filled with lots and lots of people. Uh, People hang out in the soup all day, they pry open the uh, fire hydrant next to them in summer so that they could you know, cool off in the heat. But also, they look like palaces, they're enchanting, right? That's why rich people are moving back into them. And whenever I I think of home, I think of New York City in general, but this specific type of New York City old school New York, this immigrant working class, you know, ornate old buildings falling to pieces New York, this hustle New York that I love. You know, Nagiv Mafus, he has this quote where he says that home is where your attempts to escape cease. And for me, that's what New York has been for me. It's the place that no matter what was going down, I would never try to escape from because that's where you escape to, right? That's where you belong.
0: I love that quote and I actually read it in one of your interviews so I'm so glad that you shared it with us today and I love this vision of you know old school New York and kind of you know going back to your grandmother's home as well as you know you are such a New Yorker and it's part of where you're building your future as
1: well I love the city so my my great grandfather on my Jewish side of my family came here running away from probably a political arrest way back in the old country um my my abuelo and my Puerto Rican side came here to you know, just build a life, to build a future outside that was something a little bit greater than build it, being a sugarcane cutter in Puerto Rico. And it's the place where I was born. It's the place where my mom was born. My mom was born on a kitchen table in Coney Island on Neptune Avenue. And it's, to me, the realization of so much of what I love in this world. For one thing, New York is... A city that both has a very specific identity but that people from anywhere in the world can belong to that identity. You don't have to speak English, you don't have to dress a certain way, you don't have to like take off your hijab, you don't have to take off your sari, you don't have to lose your accent, you don't have to change your name. You can still be a New Yorker as long as you're kind of sharp and smart and you hustle, right? And that lack of hustle and sharpness is also what makes a lot of people, especially a lot of other Americans, not New Yorkers, right? It's all about a quality that you have as opposed to where you were born or as opposed to trying to force yourself into a box. And um, to me, that is what makes New York magic. It's people from everywhere in the entire world speaking every possible language living together in, okay, this kind of sometimes flawed, fraught way. I'm not saying everyone loves each other all the time, but they're living together and making a common future with each other. And no one, no one in New York has ever asked, like, are you a real Merkin? No, that's just not something anyone would care about. It'd be a name, right? And that to me is, that's what built the city I love.
0: I love that so much. And it's such a great spirit that you see that definitely. And it's like an energy that you feel in New York City as well of that kind of feeling of inclusion. And I've seen the work that you've done. I mean, I know that you've always been doing activism and work and getting involved in social movements in New York City with, you know, workers, with taxi drivers more recently. And during COVID, this became, I felt, a very significant part of what you were working on, what you're writing about, your art. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, I feel like between Occupy Wall Street and COVID, it kind of bookends two stages of activism and work in New York City and being part of this kind of community and, and the struggles for justice and equality and freedom. And you're always participating in these movements how do you put yourself in these kinds of situations or choose where to be and find almost that sense of belonging within movements versus even you know geographically when i think of you i see you as being finding belonging in movements would you agree with that and then how do you go about that as a method of living
1: I mean, I think what you said about like Occupy and COVID being bookends, it's very true. I mean, I think one of the things that COVID did for, for all of us, right? Is it forced us to stay put, right? For, and it, in many ways, it forced us to say, where do I want to stay put? If I can't move, where's the place that I want to be stuck? Right. And for me, that was New York City. Um, especially because my mother is here and because my friends are here. And I felt like. New York was hit very, very, very hard by COVID early on. I think 40,000 people died really, really fast. And because New York is very dense, you can feel that around you in a way, because in a place that was more spread out, you wouldn't be hearing the sirens, right? And it wouldn't necessarily be happening in your building or whatever. And so for me during COVID, I was like, I'm not gonna leave this city at all. I'm not gonna leave it until things settle down because it's my city and you don't leave your city when it needs you, right, to stay there. And I even became very angry at a lot of people who left, especially people who were rich and left because it was boring or because they felt a little scared, you know. So I think that what COVID did was it forced me to have um, much more of a sense of like place and commitment to place than I had previously had because I previously had traveled so much. I mean, I don't think I went more than three months without traveling for the past decade at at least. Um, I certainly didn't spend nearly two years in, in any one place like I had. And in terms of finding home within movements, I mean, I think I just, I feel at home with anyone who's a smart rebel who doesn't like the way the world is and doesn't think that they're going to listen to the world's stupid rules, right? That wants to make something better for themselves and something better for other people. Anyone who's capable of being kind of skeptical and looking askance at the world, I mean, those are my people, right? And in terms of New York-based fights, New York is a, a very interesting city that I think is, it used to be a bit more different than other cities, but unfortunately, other cities are also suffering the same thing, which is that Uh, new york is a city that is undergoing extreme like ultra gentrification right where rents are going up so much to points where making a hundred thousand dollars a year just wouldn't cut it you know it's a place where people can't own their own homes usually 70 percent of the city rents because it's so expensive it's a place where you know if you're like you know some lady who does nails, right? Or some guy who sells shorters on the street or whatever. It's really hard to live here because it's so expensive and you keep getting pushed further and further out. Even middle class people get pushed further and further out. And even upper middle class people are pushed further and further out in this cycle of displacement. So even people for whom New York really feels like your home and it's like your home in your heart, it's very hard to make it your home in practice. And in fact, New York fights you on attempts to make it your home in practice because it's so hard to you know, secure stable housing. And so um, for me in, in New York, the fight that I think is most important right now and what I give a lot of my effort to is the fight for housing, right? For tenants. Because I think that If laws aren't changed here, and if it's still so easy to evict people, and if it's still so easy to double and triple and quadruple rents, normal people just won't be able to make their homes here. And that is a shame because those are the people that built the city. The city wasn't just built by Russian oligarchs, right? This city was built by every sort of people, and I want every sort of people to be able to live here and be able to have a stable life here, not have to move all the time, be able to you know, raise their kids here, be able to feel home here.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I think we've seen so much of that shifts during the pandemic in cities. I mean, in Chicago, it happened to a lesser extreme. New York has definitely happened at a different level. And it's very, very sad because Like you say in one of your articles, I think the Love Letter to New York, you describe how during the pandemic, people started using the city in different ways and different kinds of people were using the city. Finally, were able to kind of like occupy their own cities again and use, you know, the public spaces and use the streets and kind of take over the city in a way that was not really available to them or accessible to them before. And to lose that and have a full reversal of that is just extremely sad.
1: It's an absolute tragedy. I mean, one of the things I remember of many was how during the pandemic, Washington Square Park was filled with like young black and Latino people from um, the outer boroughs who probably either would have been like shooed away by cops there or wouldn't have felt like, you know, the sense of ownership of that park or whatever. But during the pandemic, they made that park into a carnival. There were like performers, there were people selling stuff, people roller skating, there were crazy dance parties, you know, at night, and. It was like, this is seeing a city belong to its people, you know? And it's not that there weren't also, you know, a lot of homeless people who are having, you know, mental health problems. It's not that there wasn't also some imperfect stuff, but just to see the city belong to people in a non-commercial way where people are just making their own joy, that was so beautiful. And right now there's this really, I feel like, vindictive attempt to take that away and to turn the city right back into like a consumable product for people who work in finance or something, you know, to police it more, to, you know, shut these things down. And, you know, that to me, it's such a shame. It's such, it's such a disgrace.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, it's like so strange that the parallels between, you know, this idea of what you said you know, creating a home in your heart, but it's not home in practice. I mean, how crazy is that feels like when somebody's talking about Syria or Aleppo and, you know, places in war, whereas, you know, here we're talking about a financial war on people's own, you know, the occupants of the city and the people that belong there. And um, it's, it is a devastation. And I, I think we're seeing more and more of it across the United States right now, sadly. You grabbed me when you said smart rebel and smart rebels being your people. I wanted to talk a little bit about Brothers of the Gun. And your collaboration with Marwan Hisham and on that book, that beautiful book that you created together and that you wrote together and you illustrated and had started as a text correspondence between you and Marwan while he was in Raqqa and sending you pictures from Raqqa. And that resulted in this beautiful memoir and the story of Marwan and his friends and Syria. And so I wanted to ask you about if you wanted to tell us a little bit about that work and
1: how it affected you. Oh, yeah, of course. Me and Marwan uh, started corresponding, I want to say, in 2014. There was a group of people on Twitter, because we met through that group of people, right, who were interested in Syria and were talking about it. And Marwan, who was going under a different name at that time, was always just like a really independent-minded, witty, insightful person. And um, at that time, I was uh, starting to learn Arabic. And we just kind of became friends and kind of bonded over talking about, you know, Arabic and talking about literature and talking about um, English literature too. Like I remember he would like send me these Kebani stuff and I would uh, send him George Orwell stuff, for instance. And after a while of just corresponding, I asked him something. He was in Raqqa, which at that time was being occupied by ISIS. And I asked him if he had any photos on his phone of just normal life. I didn't, not new photos, don't take any photos, right? But just you know, the photos we all have, right? I asked him if I could uh, draw from them. And he told me he didn't have photos, but he told me that he would take some. And I was like, it's a little crazy. That's dangerous, right? And he's like, no, 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 don't trust me. It's not dangerous. Liar, you know? But he took these photos of life under the ISIS occupation, of the kids digging in the trash for stuff to sell, of the breadlines, lines, of the ISIS traffic cops looking at women, of the wounded fighters, of people checking their internet, of all of that. He sent me these photos uh, for me to draw from. And I remember when I was looking at them, I felt like I was looking at something that all of the borders and all of the bastards in the world have conspired to keep him from showing me. And I was so honored and I was so humbled to get these photos. So I decided to draw from them. And because Marwan is a really good writer, he's was an English literature major. He was someone who translated reading for Godot into, uh, into Arabic, like for fun, you know? I asked him if he wanted to write some captions. And we published this collaboration for Vanity Fair. Now around when this was happening, America started uh, bombing Raqqa. And Marwan, not the American government, not the media, but Marwan broke the news because he was able to identify the sound of the bombs and how the American bombs were um, a lot more powerful than the Russian bombs. So we had done this collaboration together and we decided to do more and we became closer and closer friends. He eventually went to Mosul. He went to um, East Aleppo when, it was still held by the rebels. And he sent me all these photos and I was drawing from them and he was writing to accompany them. And we were publishing them in Vanity Fair. And eventually, you know, I asked him, I was like, dude, we should we should do a book with these. And we decided to do Brothers of the Gun, which is uh, the story of him uh, being a young guy growing up in Roca, a very working class city, and his two best friends, uh, both of whom uh, joined the rebels and both of whom uh, died fighting during the war. And it's a book about, you know, many things. It's a book about Syria. It's a book about idealism, about war, about you know danger. But I would say above all, it's a book about home. And it's a book about commitment to home because it's about his love of Raqqa, his love of the city that he was born in. And in many ways, his inability to fit anywhere else. And, um, you know, after we finished the book and after we finished the book tour, um, Marwan went back to Raqqa and, you know, he's married there. He has an internet business, you know, just, just like he did back in the day. And, um, I think. Of all of the many, many, many things I learned from Marwan, because he's brilliant, his love of home was something that taught me a lot, because I had always um, been someone who was kind of always flitting around the world, and I always loved New York, obviously, right? But I, I think I learned from him what it meant to actually, like, really love a place and really stay and really be committed to it. And it's something I'm always grateful to him for teaching me.
0: That's so beautiful. And the book is such a powerful book and so beautiful with its illustrations as well. And that layering of, you know, powerful words with powerful images is such a signature of your work. And it just takes everything to the next level in terms of understanding the details and getting both, you know, pieces of really artistry. You know, when you read something, you absorb it in a very different way than when you look at something. And that's one of the most powerful parts about your work as an artist.
1: Thank you. And it was very collaborative. Like we, we wrote it together. Like basically, like I would interview him and write a part. He'd rewrite it. He would write something and then I would like fill in parts, you know, in a way where like almost nothing I could would say was like just one of ours. And it was the same with the art. Like I would draw and I would sketch and I would interview him about what the drawing should be because what I was trying to do was I was trying to almost like download his memories, right? And put them on the page. And then, you know, he'd look at my sketch and he'd be like, this is dead wrong. This is cliched. What is this? You know, no one drinks that soda. What you know? What the hell? And um, so I would, you know, re- redo these sketches and redo these sketches until it was something that was right. You know, so, until it was true. Because I was also drawing places I had never been. I've never been to Raqqa, and I'm so proud of what we created, and I'm so proud of this fusion of what we both did. You know. Those drawings that I did in Brothers of the Gun are my favorite drawings I've ever done. I did the same number of drawings for it as Agoya did for Disasters of War, and they were my attempts to channel that. And I think that what Brothers of the Gun did is something that I always try to do in art, which is I try to do something photography can't do, right? I try to pull things back from the memory hole that weren't photographed. I try to make things that were deliberately hidden, visual and visible again. I try to show what things felt like, as well as, um, you know, just what they looked like. And so I think Brothers of the Gun is probably the work that I feel like I came close to succeeding in that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love that. I think that one of the things you've said in your interviews that I wanted to ask you about is you've said something along the lines of... As you draw, you look at things as they are versus how you think that they are. And I thought that that was a very powerful way of the concept of drawing. It reminded me of how we write as well is that when you want to write something and you want to make it true, you look very, very closely and you have to kind of cut away the things that you realize their perceptions or maybe how you want to see something or how you want to say something. And then you realize that this is not really what's true. And that you also uh, were describing in another interview about like drawing rubble. And I know that in Brothers of the Gun and also in other works that you've done around Syria, also around Palestine, you know, the idea of drawing something that has been destroyed is very difficult. And I wanted to just ask you about that creative process of how you decide what to draw and um, how you decide what is your next piece of work and how, what to commit to as an artist when you're working in these very difficult
1: situations. First of all like I want to say something about like the technique of drawing and about how when you're drawing well you're sort of fighting against cliche. So everyone has uh, something in their mind where they like think things look a certain way. For instance, when I was a kid, I would draw noses that looked like an upside down seven. And um, my mother is an amazing artist and she'd be like, hey, is that a nose? If that's a nose, where do they breathe out of? Where are the nostrils, right? And she'd be like, that's not a nose. Look at a nose, right? And and you start looking and you're like, it has these round bits, it has nostrils, it has like, you know, a bridge. And you start realizing like, it's not a seven. The seven is a weird representative cliche in your head. It's something else, something much more complicated. And everything is like that. Every time you are drawing something for real and trying to do it good, you're fighting against the cliche that's in your head of what the thing looks like to actually see it in front of you in all of its like richness and all of its complexity. And in terms of how I choose what I draw, so what I did with Brothers of the Gun nonwithstanding, in general, I prefer to draw things that I've seen myself with my own eyes. Even if I shoot iPhone reference of it, right, I want to have been there. And the reason is because if I wasn't there, I'm relying on someone else to make choices for me, right? Even if it's something petty, even if it's like what angle something is shot at, right? I'm still uh, counting on someone else to make that determination for me. And when you're there, like just life has such poetry to it. Life has such accidental and deliberate symbolism to it that if you're somewhere where history is happening and you're sensitive and your eyes are open, it can't help but slaying you all the time. I remember uh, when I was in Gaza in 2015, I was in the Shujaia neighborhood, which Israel had uh, destroyed during one of their invasions during what they called Operation Protective Edge. Israel had bombed this civilian neighborhood. They had brought in bulldozers, um, brought in tanks, and it was destroyed. And I was um, walking around it, and I saw the wreck of this hospital. And then I saw men that were taking the rebar from the hospital and they were straightening it. And why are they straightening rebar? They're straightening rebar because Gaza is under blockade because they prevented from getting adequate construction material by Israel. And they didn't have like the proper tools to straighten it. They were using like largely hand tools. It was a really, really hot day, but there they were. They were taking this rebar, which was all messed up from this bombing, which looked like snakes, looked like tentacles. It looked so horrifying, and they were straightening it out so they could build something again because they were like, you cannot beat us. And to me, this moment of seeing that purely accidental moment I got from walking through this neighborhood summed up so much about Gaza and so much about the defiance of it that I had to draw that.
0: Yeah, I remember those drawings too. And it's very, very powerful that capturing those kinds of very devastating, sensitive, hard moments is definitely a piece of your work. And what you just said, even fighting a cliche, I mean, I never thought about that in terms of the drawings, but it's definitely true in terms of writing you know, always trying to fight the cliches. You reminded me about, you know, when we go back to this idea of the kinds of movements that you've been part of, you are one of my heroes in terms of just you know, the way that you stood in solidarity with Syrians at a time when there were a lot of people that weren't standing in solidarity with Syrians at the beginning of the revolution, people that we expected to. And Syria, as we've talked about this a lot over the years, is that it was this weird moment in history where, where there was a division between what people thought about what should happen in the world to stop what was going on in Syria. And you stood very very firmly on the side of Syrians' uh, demands and rights for freedom and democracy and dignity and all of the things that people were chanting for in the streets when they took to the streets against the, the regime. And the kinds of stands that you take are not always in alignment with a certain group of people. You take different stands and it's always that you have your own compass towards justice. And I think in that way, even it's fighting that cliche of this group of people is progressive or liberal or X, Y, and Z. And then you have to be in this box and take the same stands against or with all different kinds of positions or wars or fights or movements, but you don't actually follow those.
1: No, I don't. I mean, I think as a general rule, any group of people that's having bombs dropped are on them. It deserves your sympathy. And the people that are dropping the bombs on them don't. I mean, I think that's a pretty basic thing in the world. And I think that people who want to live in a democratic society versus people who want to lock them up in jails and torture them so that their son and grandson can stay in power in perpetuity, it's pretty clear, you know, whose side you should be on. And I think that it's true, that with a lot of political tendencies, there's this idea like, oh, if you are a socialist, you should also, for some inexplicable reason, uh support, you know, Russia, which is a, you know, ultra-capitalist kleptocracy right now. Or if you're a progressive on this, you should support this incredibly unprogressive, um, you know, government. And I just find that sort of thing, like, it's antithetical to compassion, it's antithetical to human solidarity and empathy, and it's frankly antithetical to thinking for yourself, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've always wondered like how not more people think this way because it does feel very clear. And it was shocking as a Syrian, it was very shocking in that moment of thinking that, oh, this is the Arab Spring, people are finally standing up in the region for their freedom. And then the reaction was very, very different. And that was a big part of the shock of Syria and I know other places in the world. To go to Karam House, I wanted to talk a little bit about your work there. You were so kind to come to Karam House and you came with us on our missions before and you drew murals in refugee schools in southern Turkey. And then when we built our Karam House in Daihanle, you came and you gave life to our walls with these beautiful murals that are still a huge part of the identity of the house today of different kinds of figures to inspire the kids that come to Karam House with, you know, international and regional figures people that are poets and writers and, you know, the people with quotes from their work. You know, we have Nelson Mandela, Zaha Hadid, Mahmoud Darwish and many more. And so I want you to talk a little bit about your work and making these murals and what did making them mean to you?
1: Oh, my God, it was so cool. It was so fun, actually. As I said, I love Arabic language literature. I mean, I love, you know, reading like Hassan Qanafani or... Or Mahmoud or Mahmoud Darwish, and these people are like the most elegant, brilliant, you know, sometimes quite cynical, just like everything to me, like these writers. And so for me, it was this huge pleasure to get to do these portraits of them, honoring them, right? And with quotes from their work, but then also, it was such a joy to take other writers that I love from all around the world, for instance, you know, James Baldwin, right? Or uh, Julia de Burgos, who's one of the most famous Puerto Rican poets, and translate their work into Arabic, or have the Kram house mentors and the kids translate it into Arabic, and put them alongside and almost make this like little... Saints or rogues gallery of artists and writers and thinkers for the walls of Karam House is something I loved so much. And one really cool thing was I tweeted that picture I did of Julia de Burgos and it went viral in Puerto Rico. They even, there was an article about it in Nuevo Dia, which is the uh, biggest newspaper in Puerto Rico because they were so happy that, you know, Puerto Rican writer is being honored on this international stage like that, right? That, you know, translated into Arabic with, you know, kids in Southeast Turkey appreciating her work. So, I mean, for me, it was amazing. And also, like, Karam House is beautiful. Like, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen photos or hasn't visited Karam House, it's just like a gorgeous, light-filled, creativity-filled Palace of like wonders, of intellect, of creativity, of discovery, of curiosity, libraries, you know, uh, labs with like 3D printers and all sorts of workshops, brilliant minds, uh, really, really smart kids too, my God. And so it was just so fun to be in that environment, like day after day, beautifying those walls. I mean, I loved it. I loved it.
0: Yeah, I loved it too. I mean, I had a Zoom interview while I was there just a couple months ago. And I sat in that room and I had, I think Julia was behind me. Maybe it was Anthony Shadid on that wall, that same wall. And afterwards, when I was watching the video, I was like, that's the coolest backdrop I've ever had. I need these behind me everywhere I go because they are so beautiful and they're so photogenic and they're so inspiring. And I always love this idea that they're there to inspire the kids and always have them read the quotes, wonder about these figures that they might might recognize and some they don't. And the library is a huge piece of the Ketam house and kids like borrow books and read books all the time. But you did also these beautiful murals also at the Saddam School and at the schools that we worked in and I remember this. You have so many animations with animals and everything's very detailed and fantastical and wherever you look there's like a little story of, you know, a mouse and a cat and something going on. So your work you can just like go into and see all of the imagination.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I love doing those murals, like really playing with the architecture. And I love drawing animals sometimes because you can tell human stories, but without making them specific the way humans are. Like a mouse isn't necessarily from any particular country. It's not necessarily like a boy mouse or a girl mouse. You know, it's just like the figure in the story and anyone can like relate to it. Um, I think that's why fairy tales use animals so much or like why like Wadimna, for instance, uses animals. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I was trying to do is trying to tell these like these stories with all of these animals like flowing everywhere, you know? So
0: my next question was actually going to be about Arabic. And, you know, I know that you've been learning Arabic and uh, for a long time. And you also, I don't know when you started learning Yiddish or if you've always been learning Yiddish or just working on it more because of this upcoming book. I wanted to ask you, what languages do you speak and how do you approach this love of languages? Because I think that's also a gift, but I know that it's something that you really enjoy and uh, are working towards. So can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of your life?
1: God, I feel the need to issue a disclaimer because I feel like, let's say if you're like an Arab person or a European person, you're considered like, I don't know, like that, you know, a lot of languages when you know, like eight languages, you know, (laughs) knowing like two or three is just standard. (laughs) Whereas if you're an American and you know how to say like, je parle français like people think that you know you're like a genius so I want to say that like my any linguistic ability I have that's considered good is only by the low bar of American standards first of all not you know not comparable to for instance like your multilingualism or like my many friends but I mean I speak Spanish good like I would say I speak that pretty pretty fluently now enough to you know negotiate anything i need or get myself into trouble my arabic used to be better i started studying it in 2013 and unfortunately i didn't study Amiya. i didn't study you know colloquial arabic because i just didn't have anyone to practice with instead i uh, got that much-mocked book called Al-Kitab, which is um this Arabic textbook from Georgetown, which teaches you the word for comparative literature. And, you know, like my father works at the UN as like the first things you learn, right? And it's like this kind of like pro-Gamal Abdel Nasser, you know, pan-Arabic book, but it's an amazingly hilarious and funny book. So I learned my Arabic from that. I learned Fusha, and that's why I got so into, I think, like reading contemporary Arabic literature, like Kabani. One of the things that I did to like kind of really teach myself how to read, which was the only thing I was good at. My speaking, you know my speaking, you know how bad my accent is. <laughs> but I got a copy of an Izar Kabbani book that's called Thaura, which is Poetry, Sex, and the Revolution. And I brute force translated it. I got a, my dictionary, I printed it all out, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to translate this whole book. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how clumsy and horrific this is. But by the end of it, I'm going to have like a vocabulary. and I'm going to have a feel for it. Right. And I've done that with a few uh, Kabani, like books of essays. And I think really that was one of the things that probably helped me most, you know, for like just getting a sense of reading and, and grammar and everything. And I think you learn things that you love, right? Like, I loved Darwish. I loved Kanathani. I loved these people. I loved, like, reading Nawala Sadawi. I loved, even though she's controversial, I loved Ghada Saman, you know, and I loved reading Kanafani's love letters to her. And so I think that more than any talent, it was my addiction to these geniuses that, you know, kept me going. I started studying Yiddish for my book because Yiddish was, you know, the language of my great grandparents and the language that all of the world that they interacted with was in as well. And um, Yiddish is a pretty hard language. It's also hard because it's a small language. Very few people speak it. And that way, it's almost the opposite of uh, Arabic and Spanish, which are spoken by so many people. And so because of that, there are much less uh, resources for it. instance, there's like one online dictionary for Yiddish and you have to pay each time you look up a word. But I studied it at uh, YIVO, which is a center for Yiddish history. I took two summers of it. And I like it. I think because it feels like a sort of necromancy when you read it, because here's this language that, you know, was was murdered, right? But there was this whole literature, there's all these books by these stubborn, optimistic, hopeful people that they've written in it and that were just being chucked on the street because no one could read them. And when I would pick up one of these books, it felt like I was saving something from the past that would have just been erased. And I think that's why I love it. One of the funny things about Yiddish is that Yiddish is basically mostly based on medieval German, but written with Hebrew letters and with a few Hebrew words and some Slavonic words, like maybe 20% Hebrew words. But because Hebrew is very similar to Arabic, every so often there'll be this word in Yiddish where I'll feel like I'm feeling the warmth of the Arabic in this word, you know, like choylem is the word for dream in Yiddish, which is like hallem. you know. And so I feel this love of Arabic, like sort of filtered through Yiddish in a strange sort of counterintuitive way.
0: That is so beautiful and it's extraordinary because it's not, I mean, I understand what your point about not knowing so many languages, but you have chosen two very hard ones to learn. And I think what you've shared on social media about, you know, you're working through this and this idea of translating and using the dictionary. I mean, I've read all of these things when you've shared them with the world and even like how you write your Arabic and your Arabic becomes part of your art. I think it's hugely inspiring because languages are very, very difficult to enter and you've chosen and ones that are they're particularly difficult to enter.
1: I mean, Arabic is really hard, but Arabic is so beautiful. And also, like, one of the things I love about it was when I started learning it, I was kind of depressed for other reasons. And Arabic, not only is it very hard, but it's very um, intellectually rigorous, I want to say, because, you know, they have, like, the three-letter root and then you have the patterns that you put it into. And it almost reminds me of this, like, Math, You know what I mean? Like this higher level of math combined with like the most beautiful poetry and written with this like swirling calligraphy. So it's like very, I don't know, like elegant and absorbing. And I think it took my mind out of the bad loops that it was in because it was so hard. It was like the same way that sometimes you can bust yourself out of bad mental loops because you go running, right? And then you run till you're exhausted. I think Arabic did something like that to my brain. (laughs) Uh, so
0: I was born in Brooklyn. So we have this Brooklyn connection right here today um, on this first episode, which is kind of cool. But when my parents moved us back to Syria and Aleppo when I was twelve, I basically knew probably up until first grade Arabic and very Ammiya, like just the the spoken Arabic at home. I didn't know how to read or how to write. And I went back to Syria and I had to go straight into seventh grade oof, oof. in um, in like a private school, but it was a private public school. So it was just basically, you know, full on Ba'athist. Everything's in Arabic. Everything is, you know, rogue and rogue memorization. <laughs> and it was very, very, very difficult to learn Arabic in that way but what you're talking about for me like the grammar was part that drew drew me in. the only way I could learn Arabic was going into the grammar going into the Kauai the fundamentals because I thought of it as math and so what would happen when we would have our Arabic exams like the language exams you'd have a piece where you would have first the poetry and you'd have to explain the poetry and then you would have lines under to do the grammar part of the poetry and then you would also have a composition so anything that had to do with grammar like everybody in the class obviously they're all like from aleppo grew up their whole lives there but it's kind of like when you learn english you don't really know english grammar but when you're an outsider you have to learn grammar so basically the, the way that we would exchange information and in the tests was i would tell them the koide piece the grammar piece and they would tell me what does this even mean like so i could actually conjugate the whole like sentence or the whole beta like the whole line but not know what any of it? What it means? Yeah, yeah, to,
1: yeah. it's crazy. And you put on all that um, out perfectly.
0: Yeah. And I could do all of it, add up. I could do all the add up perfectly. Now I forgot all of that. But then, you know, when we would have to do the rote memorization of history and geography, you know, when you'd answer a question, the way that you'd answer a question is you'd have to put it in as is from the textbook. You cannot put an answer for anything that is like, just you made it up out of your own mind. It had to be exactly the textbook. And so I would memorize, 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 and I'd go to the test. And then I would forget, if I forgot a word, I would just leave a blank. So I would give in my, like, they would be in these little books. I'd give my booklet back to the teacher and she would look at it and it would be like, imagine like an entire paragraph, but they would just be blank words because I wouldn't have anything to put instead, oh but I could continue on. And so like, imagine knowing like blocks of information that did not make any sense. And I would just like pour it onto the page. That's
1: such madness. That's like the worst possible way to teach something.
0: When you think about it, it is the worst way to teach a population, but isn't it the best way to create a whole population of non-thinkers or like to fight thinking? Exactly. Um, You can't really like suppress it because then you end up with people like Marwan and millions of other young people who would not take that and would find information and find it where they can. But it's very, very, very hard to do.
1: Exactly. And also because it's ridiculous, it not only like doesn't teach you how to think, but it also teaches you to like not question things because if you question Things you would be like, why are we doing such a ridiculous exercise that doesn't teach us real comprehension? Exactly.
0: So we're coming up to a little bit at the end of our time. And what I wanted to talk about before we go is obviously your first book, Drawing Blood. And this is one of my favorite books. It's Molly's memoir. And I encourage everybody to read both of Molly's books. This one really takes you into that journey of how you became an artist, all of your adventures across the world. and in New York City as well. And it's such a moving book, Molly, as well as I love the writing and it is very powerful. And you talk about drawing and the power of drawing on your in your life and your sketches and your sketchbook in a really amazing way on the very end of the book. And so I asked Molly to read that passage at the very end to give you a little bit of insight to how
1: her brain works. And it's just so beautiful. Thank you. I started drawing as a way to cope with people to observe and record them, to understand them, charm them, or keep them at arm's length. I drew to show Moroccan street kids that I was more than a tourist. I drew to win the attention of beautiful women and to mock authoritarian twits. I drew from the wings of burlesque shows when the girls peeled off their gloves and poured glitter onto the crowd. When the world changed in 2011, I let my art change with it. Expanding from nightclub walls to hotel suites and street protests, my drawings bled into the world. I continue to draw out of the gluttonous desire for life in all its beauty and horror. I draw everything I hate and everything I love. I fill new notebooks every week, sketching refugee camps and rebels, performers and migrants. My work has taken me past the edge of burnout. It's burned in. Art gave me a way to see, to record, to fight and interrogate, to preserve love and demand reckoning, to find joy where once I could only see ash. I'd take on the world armed only with a sketchbook. I'd make it mine.
0: That's so beautiful, Molly. When you wrote this book, what inspired you the most about trying to tell your story and why did you choose to start writing, you know, when you wrote your book to start with your memoir? Perhaps
1: some of this will sound silly or utilitarian, but I felt like it was the story I could best tell. I was just getting started as a writer. I'd only been writing for 4 years when I when I wrote this, and I thought like, well, I know how the story goes because it's mine, right? Also, I mean, a lot of people, they thought it was silly to write a memoir when I was, I think I was um 30 when I got this book deal. But I was like, no, it's not silly. It's, it's actually fine because your memories are all fresh, right? If you write this memoir when you're, you know, 70, a lot of those things that happened in your youth, they'll just kind of have faded into like vague impressions. But if you write it when you're young, you still have everything in the moment, right? It's still raw to you. In terms of what was most inspiring about writing it, I mean... I think it gave me a gratitude for a lot of the really, really extraordinary friends I've had, like how lucky I was, especially to know all these women that I wrote about in the book, you know, brilliant performers, models, dancers, writers, real like muses that inspired me and that, you know, shaped me. And I, it made me uh, really see the community that I came from of kind of artistic, subversive New York City and really appreciate all the love that I got from that community. So yeah, I guess that that's it. The gratitude and the luck that I feel.
0: Well, it's an incredible book. And I wanted to, before we go to our rapid fire questions, I wanted to ask you about this book that you're working on about your great grandfather. Yes. Could tell us about this project and,
1: and when is it coming out? Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. I'm so late on it. My editor is mm-hmm. going to be listening to this. He's going to come with a crowbar and he's going to like break my knees so that I'll finally sit down mm-hmm. at the laptop. So I'm working on a book about my great-grandfather, Samuel Rothbard, who uh, was a painter and he was the person in the family that came to America and made everyone in our family artists. And he was also a member of a, a Jewish anti-Zionist socialist party that was at one point the most popular Jewish party in Eastern Europe and um, was you know crushed by Hitler and by Stalin and then later was erased from history essentially by Israel. So I've been working on a book that's both about Sam's legacy, but also about this movement's history. And for that, I've learned Yiddish. I, that's why I traveled, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, Ukraine, I interviewed amazing 90 year old guys who were kids in this movement. And I'm writing this book about, actually, in many ways, it relates to what we're talking about, because what this movement, the Bund, believed that Jews who were a very, very persecuted minority in Eastern Europe had a right to stay there, that they shouldn't have to go and colonize another country in order to be safe and in order to be free and in order to be themselves, and nor should they have to uh, change who they were and take on, you know, Russian names and convert to Christianity. That they were born in Russia or Poland, and they had a right to live in a decent society and freedom and, and dignity, because that was their home. And uh, they called this principle Doikites, which in Yiddish, it means here And to me, of the many horrific tragedies of the 20th century, one of the greatest ones was that this was destroyed, right? That they could not actually stay in those countries, that they were, you know, killed by their by their neighbors and by Europe. But that principle that people have a right to stay where they are, that they have a right to live in a dignified lives, that they don't have to go somewhere else just because they're a different race, just because they're a different religion but that they can be where they want to be and they can be themselves, I think is one of the most important principles. And when I do this book, I feel like I'm doing an act of resurrection on people that were unjustly crushed by some of the worst bastards of the 20th century, but that were right. Absolutely. I mean, I read a little
0: bit about this while I was researching for this interview and that idea of hearness did come up and it really struck me because I'd never heard of this concept until I was reading about it. And it is something that we know, also relates to the refugee crisis now because people in a way are not allowed to feel here-ness. It's almost, you can't go back, but you're not really here, And but we don't know where you can go and if you'll be able to go anywhere. And it's it's a huge struggle, even the idea of just continuously believing that you're going to be able to go back somewhere that really doesn't exist anymore is not a way for a young person or any person to be able to move forward in life. Exactly. So you kind of feel perpetually stuck.
1: Also, when you have governments that don't allow refugees to do anything, I mean, even, you know, in America, people, sometimes they have asylum things where they can't work, right, where they can't, you know, buy property, where they can't, you know, leave the country to visit anyone. And these things, they keep people in a limbo that is so psychologically detrimental, right? You can't go home because it's too dangerous and home has also perhaps changed unrecognizably, but the place that you're in won't allow you to be there. I mean, that's why I think one of the best things about America, and I'm quite critical of my own country, though I love it, but one of the best things is the idea that if you're born here, you're a citizen. There isn't this sort of multi-generational thing like in so many countries in the world where you're born somewhere, your parents are born somewhere, your grandparents are born somewhere, but you can't be part of it because of some inane notion of like the blood or whatever. In America, for all of its many faults, for all many bad things, does with immigrants, at least. If you're born in this country, you're an American. Absolutely.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time. And we're going to go into our rapid fire questions now. So the first question is, to complete this sentence, home is where? Home is
1: where you go when the shit goes down.
0: (laughs) That's such a Molly answer. (laughs) It's true, though. Um, It is true. The second question is, if you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? Oh, my God. One belonging.
1: So I had these sketchbooks that when I was 17 and I went away from home the first time, I had this like book that I was like my diary and I also my first good drawings because all my drawings before that were bad. I think I would probably take that because it was this thing from such a formative moment in my life.
0: Beautiful. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's
1: trying to find belonging in a new place? You know, I sometimes feel like not so equipped to do this, but I'm just going to try. I think that when you're an outsider for whatever reasons, often the people that you can relate to well are other outsiders in that society, even if they're not necessarily the exact same identity as you. I think that there is a certain unity of people that are kept outside of a system. And so perhaps what I would say if I was talking to, I don't know, like a 17 year old, you know, let's say refugees, I would say look for the other people that have also then kept outside of the system, even if they're not necessarily you know, Syrian or you know, Afghan or you know whatever your specific background is, you might have more in common with them than you think.
0: That's great advice. My next question is, I think this is going to be New York, but if you choose a different hometown that you relate to, you can choose wherever you want. But give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in the place that you call your hometown.
1: Okay, so there's this boxing gym slash cultural center in the Bronx called El Maestro that has these amazing concerts. They bring like old Puerto Rican musicians from the island there and they sing like old school music, like mountain music, you know, and everyone dances and it's so fun and it's like so cheap. And yeah, go to El Maestro, that's my first place. B&H Dairy, which is this really cool place. It's like an old school, uh, kosher dairy restaurant, but it's run by an Egyptian guy and it has, uh, the best ever uh, grilled egg and cheese. It's like so greasy and so good, right? Then the third place that I would say is I think you should walk down the main drag of Bay Ridge because it's like, people from every single Arab country are there with their awesome businesses. So there's like, you know, you get like Palestinian bakery and then you can eat like Yemeni food and then you can like smoke shisha with like the Syrians. Then there's like the Palestinian know, Baladi, the Palestinian grocery store, but which has, and then you have like Moroccan place and it's such like a feast being there. I love that. I love that place. I learned to drive in Bay Ridge and I was a very bad student. So I, it took me a long time to get my license, a lot of lessons. And I really got to know that particular like strip of the Arab community there. And I recommend everyone visit it.
0: That's really wonderful. And we'll look all this stuff up and we'll put links in the notes. So everybody who goes to New York can go to these places that Molly loves. My next question is what dish tastes like home to you?
1: It's interesting because New York has so much immigrant food, right? However, there is one dish that is our dish, that no one else does it. Anyone else who says they do it, they're liars. Don't believe them, especially not Chicago people. Sorry, Lena, And that is pizza. We invented good pizza and no one else can do pizza. All of their pizza is failures. A delicious slice of like Ray's like $1 pizza, like dripping with golden grease on a paper plate. That is what you want. That is New York.
0: I completely agree. <laughs> I do not have loyalty to Chicago pizza, but yes, New York pizza is the pizza. So my final question is, especially for you as a writer, I really wanted to know your answer is what's a book or a books if you'd like that you love and have recommended the most to your friends?
1: I mean, it always changes, right? Because I read a lot and, you know, you, you read and then like you, you fall in love. I mean, there's like a few books. If you read Arabic, cause I read, the, I read it in Arabic, it would be, um, Tayyab um, you know, season of migration to the north is, I think like the, the post-colonial novel. And I, I don't want to like get too much into the plot because it'll spoil for you, but, um, it is an amazing book about, like, Sudan and England and how, like, everyone is kind of messed up. But it's just, it's a great book. Read, read that. Then um one book that I think is relevant for what we were talking about, about Syria and how a lot of people you thought would support you didn't because of weird, stupid loyalties they had and sort of team mindset is a book by uh, Victor Serge called um, Memoirs of Revolutionary. Because Victor Serge was French-born Russian anarchist who joined the Bolsheviks and then later realized that the Bolsheviks were. Becoming authoritarian and basically like murdering the revolution, doing all of this horrific stuff, and he sided with uh, Trotsky and was exiled to you know Central Asia, and then finally escaped to Western Europe and basically like lived the rest of his life in the shadow of Stalinist persecution until he died. And paid very, very dearly for breaking with the Soviet Union. And I think, first, he's a stunningly beautiful writer. But second of all, the way that he describes the cost of really believing something, then realizing that the people you're with have betrayed it, and then speaking out against that and how much that costs you. I think it's an amazing book about independent thought and about a sort of internal sense of conscience. I love that book.
0: Wonderful. We will be looking at both of these books and also sharing with the audience. And I really, really appreciate your recommendations and all of your time, Molly, today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you about home and belongings and so many other things. I really, you know, honor our friendship and I feel always so lucky to know you and you stood with so many people and so I thank you for all of your bravery and your act of trying to undo the erasure of so many things just came up so many times in different ways in your work and in this conversation today so thank you so much and we're waiting for your third book And to be able to learn more and and always looking at your work to be inspired. And I hope that we can see each other very soon. Oh my
1: God. I feel like my heart feels really full. Thank you so much. I always adore spending time with you and I can't wait to see you again in New York over pizza. Thank you, Molly. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: Wasn't that such a great conversation with Mali? I really enjoyed hearing her stories and all of the vivid details that she brings to her work, her art, her writing, and activism. And it reminded me of my conversation with Rima, a young Syrian teen who I spoke with in Karam House Rayhande earlier this summer. Rima spoke to me about her journey from Syria to Turkey, and she spoke about her memories of her home in Syria, really in colors versus details and she also spoke about her aspirations for the future. She's a powerhouse, and I know that she has a brilliant future ahead and has a lot of ambition, so I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Rima, and hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Rima, to Belongings, the podcast. I'm so happy that you're here at Kerem House, and it's so great to see you.
2: And I thank you. My name is Reema Arja from Adelik. I am 16 years old and I have been in Turkey for 10 years. We talked about your memory of home. Could you tell us about
0: the last memory you have of your home in Syria? And could you also tell us about the map of home
2: that you made? I didn't live there for long. It was about six years. What I remember the most is the color of the ceiling, actually. I'm going to start with me and my sister's room. The ceiling was white and pink or something like that. It was made of a drywall, so it had a shape of a moon and four stars. In my mother's room, the ceiling was red. In the guest room, it was yellow. The living room ceiling was green. I don't remember the kitchen ceiling, but... There was a special chair in the kitchen that I remember very well. It was orange. That is all I can recall. I don't remember much else since I didn't live there for a long period of time.
0: Your home is colorful.
2: Yes, it is. My dad used to work in a construction and painting for a living. Is
0: your home in Turkey also
2: colorful? No, unfortunately, it's just white. I wanted to ask about
0: your journey from Syria, Idlib, over here. Could you tell us about that journey that you took in your childhood?
2: I don't remember a lot, but sometimes I remember stuff from my conversations with my mom in general. My dad was one of the first to protest in Adela. The government wanted to arrest him back then. And they did. My family and I went to protest once. And right after, a raid of police officers came to our house. It was about a 100 people. They sealed the entire building and came looking for my dad as if he committed a horrible crime. They bounded on our door at 2 or 3 a.m. My mom opened the door and they questioned her about my dad. She told them that he wasn't home, but they didn't believe her, so they demanded to come in and look for him. When they didn't find him, they waited for him outside. And when he came home, they arrested him and took him straight to prison. They wanted to know where his friends who attended the protest were. Of course, my dad didn't want to share because he didn't want his friends to get hurt. So they threatened him to take my mom and us to prison too, if he stayed quiet. My dad got very angry and was scared for us. So he called his friend, who sadly died a short while after this, and told him we were in danger, which was true. They were watching our home, and they had undercover agents following us when we went to school. Or when my mom went to my grandmother's house. I had only one semester to graduate and my little sister, Sama, was in kindergarten. But we couldn't go to school for safety reasons. My aunt spoke to our teachers and they let us study from home. When my dad finally got out of prison, he went to a different city called Bilish. So we also went there too. But just two days before we left the house, officers came to our house again and caused a chaos. They broke everything. I remember them breaking the orange chair in the kitchen. Luckily, there wasn't major damage to the house. You hear crazy stories of what they have done to other people. I believe the house stayed okay because of my mother's prayer. Anyway, we went to Belish and stayed there for about six months without going to school or anything. During that time, my dad was working on a way for us to go to Turkey, which we did. We lived in an area near Rehale called Antakya. But we were also without a school at the time because there weren't a lot of Syrians around. We stayed at home, scared, and we didn't have much contact with anyone nearby. My dad wasn't home with us. He was working somewhere far. And when he was working, my, me, my sister, and my mom would stay in Raihanle at my uncle's house. My uncle was working at a local organization, and we would go there too at times. Those people were like my second family. We would joke with them and hang out with them, just have a good time as a kid. Shortly after all of this, we moved again. This time, closer to my dad. A very long journey. A very long journey, yes.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the hardships that you face in everyday life here in Turkey?
2: There are not much difficulties here, but sometimes I feel like I'm still Syrian refugee. Even though I have a Turkish passport and have lived here much longer than Syria. There are always the new laws and policies that come out overnight and they are usually anti-Syrians. Just not too long ago, a new law made it so that Syrian students have to pay university tuition and fees at any university, even public ones, which, uh, which are supposedly free for everyone. It's a big deal because obviously the economic situation for us is not the best. I mean, the economy here in general is bad. And even work opportunities are rare. How would an average person be able to pay 60,000 liras as a tuition and live here? So this is the situation for Syrians today. Think about it. I make plans for my future and... Suddenly, some law comes out and blocks that from being a reality. So, as a refugee, the situation is not stable. There isn't anything guaranteed. I was reading a book called To Stay, and it mentions something that really resonated in my mind. It says, ''The worst kind of poor is to be without an identity.'' When I read this, I felt it describe us Syrians, even if you live here for a long period of time, you will still feel like a stranger, no matter what.
0: What does belonging mean to you?
2: I said they asked us in the this in Karen House, a workshop at Karam House. I said I don't belong like anywhere. Belong I just to belong case. to my dreams because, because nobody, nobody can steal them me. away from me. I know what I'm going to do. That's very true. Tell us about Karam House. What does this place mean to you? Karam House is like my second home, and it will be like that even when I graduate. Karam House is really the house of city. It gives values. It lets you grow yourself if you lose hope. It gives hope back to you if you have an idea and you want to implement it. You come to Karam House. You just feel great at Karam House. When I first went there, the team and the students, everyone gave me energy to want to learn a lot of new things. It's an amazing place with amazing people. Faris, Sulaiman, Asala, Nur, Hamza and everyone there at Karam House means a lot to me. Karam House gave me hope and made me realize that there are still good people in the world. It made me love life
0: again. <laughs>
2: There are two special projects for me that I worked on Karam House. The first was when I created during the pandemic. It was an online workshop and it was about me, about my hijab. It was art of me wearing hijab and holding a shield that says Muslim lives matter. There were swords pointed at me that said things like racism, Islamophobia, and other related themes. I created this because of... A lot is happening to Muslims. I was moved by the world's response to George Floyd's tragedy. I took this phrase, Muslim Lives matters from that incidence and hope it too can make change. The other project was one in which I built a robot. It was more technical and programming related. The robot was to help disabled people who aren't able to eat by themselves. Uh, I had the idea from there to build a robot for them. We worked on it its algorithm and programmed the Arduino boards and made something that actually worked and helped people. All of the projects at Karim House means a lot to me. I built my own character from each project I worked on. I have a lot of dreams. I want to stay who I am and never lose sight of it, even when I am continuously developing. My goal in life is to study the major that I love, which is artificial intelligence. My other dream is to do good for my country, which is Syria. Also, one of the things I would love to do is to open a place like Karam House for the youth. The age between 14 and 18 is very special and magical. You can discover many skills and many secrets about yourself. I also have a dream to have my own company. I have a name for it in my mind already. It will be called motion. Hopefully, I will achieve all of this. Your dreams are
0: so beautiful and I feel inspired when I hear them. I hope you will accomplish all of them. You'll build Keram House and your project and really help the community. We want to try to do these rapid-fire questions that have short answers. The first one is, complete this sentence. Home is where?
2: Home is my dream.
0: If you had to leave home and take one item with you for a memory, what would it be?
2: I would take a camera.
0: What food reminds you of home?
2: Mac and and pasta.
0: I love that one too. What words of advice do you have for another young person in the world who has lost their home and are trying to find belonging?
2: Maybe you... Uh, lost your home maybe you lost your home or somebody you believed like was everything for you. Everything but don't forget for that no matter what don't you have hope you have the hope that's
0: beautiful what's a book that really moved you and that you loved and that you shared with your friends to read
2: There is an amazing book, but it's not that popular, actually. It talks about our lives as Syrian refugees, or even refugees in general. It's titled The Victor Letter. It talks about a Syrian refugee whose mother is Turkish and father is Syrian. They married and lived in Syria. When the war broke out, the main character goes to Turkey to visit his Turkish grandfather, who was an officer in the Turkish army. He does not know much about his mother's family and does not know the language. It was a very difficult to start for him because he's alone. When he went to Turkey, he was writing letters to his friend, thinking that he was still alive. But one day, a call came for him, telling him that the friend he's writing to has passed away. The book, in general, makes a person cry, and there are many beautiful messages in it.
0: You made me feel like reading this book and you really described it in a deep way. I know it's sad, but it also holds a lot of truth. So thank you for sharing that. I'm so happy you are with us on this podcast episode and I'm so proud of you. You're one of our young leaders and I can't wait to see all of the things that you're going to become and do in the world. And I'm very, very proud of you. And I hope you keep going and we keep hearing more and more from you. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergiatar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghraoui. Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleyman Faour. Music is Inni Nimnih by Mashru'o Leila. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.